Some of you will notice uh, that I'm not wearing my shoes again. Um, <laughs> this isn't becoming a regular feature of my preaching, I promise. But I just felt I'm going to be continuing the teaching series that I started last week. And last week we started talking about the church. What is the church? And uh, I just felt provoked last week that I should take my shoes off. Because um, I feel like I'm talking about something that's really significant and really important to God. Um, almost like it's a holy thing to discuss. And so I thought, I'm going to take my shoes off as a, as a physical demonstration about how God feels about the church. So if at any point you think, I've, I'm lost, I have no idea what he's talking about, just look at my feet and go, ah, oh, the church. There we go. Not that my feet represent the church. Okay, this is going good, isn't it? Oh, hey. So uh, last week I also mentioned... Um, this thing that my, my two-year-old is in the habit of doing, um, where whenever Zach sees a, a piece of bare skin, he feels the need to slap it. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why. I think he just likes the noise. So if you're kind of giving him a cuddle and he sees some bare skin, he gives it a whack. And so you have to be really careful when you get dressed in the mornings if he's running around because he's going to you know, slap wherever he can find. And it just reminded me that for many of us, um, it's easy for us to slap the church, to slap leaders in the church, not physically, but um, with our words and with the things that we say and with the, the attitudes that we develop in our heart. Church is far from perfect. You wouldn't expect it to be. The church is a people made up of imperfect people um, trying to represent a perfect God. And I just felt last week there's a challenge for us to not speak ill or think ill of God's church, um, to not treat it with disrespect. So that's part of why we've been doing this couple of weeks on the church. Another reason is that um, in this room, there's many of us who've been gathering from all kinds of different cultures uh, and church cultures. And we all come to church, come to a gathering like this with all of our preconceived ideas of what church ought to be. So I want us to spend some time looking at the Bible and saying this is um, God's vision of the church. This is the ideal. The real is often a long way short of the ideal, but let's try to get there and let's try to live our Christian lives with that in mind. Uh, last week we looked at this um, Oh no, we didn't. That's our Bible reading. We're going to look at 1 Peter 2, 4, verses 1 to 11. We looked at the fact that the church is built on Jesus and that it is a people and not a building. And our goal in doing this is that we would love the body of Christ, the body of Jesus, and we'd learn to partner together in the gospel. So if you've got a Bible, let's go to 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 11, and um, see how we get on this morning. Let's pray. Father, please speak to us this morning. Thank you that you already have been doing so. Um, it's great hearing some of the contributions and stuff that comes through as people share what you're putting on their heart. It's brilliant. And I ask that you'd use me to help speak to the people that you love and uh, yeah, help us to get a right vision of what you want us to do with our lives. Amen. 1 Peter 2, 4. As you come to him, a living stone... Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So right at the beginning, Peter says, your identity is this. You're a brick in a wall. You're a brick in a building. It's not a particularly glamorous existence or glamorous thing to be told. But much of life is very ordinary, but it's very significant. Because it's about being part of something that's as glorious as a vision of God's church, as Peter writes out here. Uh, we live in an age of social media um, and Instagram. 
where we are always trying to sell our lives as being so, or we look at other people's lives and think they are very glamorous, they are very exciting. Uh, Lego movie song, everything is awesome. It's not actually true. Much of life is just very ordinary, very mundane, very everyday. It's about being bricks in a building, being significant, not because of being life changers, but because we are part of God's people. And much of the significance of the Christian life can't be measured. Uh, You can't have a tick list next to some of the most significant things in life. It's just about being and abiding. We often call this a long obedience in the same direction. But you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they, they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So last week we said that the church is built on Jesus here we go. We said that the church is built on Jesus and that the church is a people, not a place. And this week I want us to continue just by continue looking through this passage, just by coming to the conclusion that this, the church has a very clear purpose. We said that there's these two words, ecclesia, which is the, the New Testament word for church, and the word kirsch, which is the German word from where we get the translation church. Kirsch refers to a building, a place that people meet in. Ecclesia refers to the congregation and the people. But Ecclesia is also a group of people who've been called out for a particular purpose. So when you go to a concert or you're in a stadium, you're there for a purpose, aren't you? We want the show. We want the show. You're there for a reason. You're an Ecclesia gathered for a particular purpose. So the church is a group of people who've been gathered for a particular purpose. What is that purpose? Well, let me just read a few verses to us again. Verse 9, um, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It says the ch- purpose of the church is worship. It's for God. But you're a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our purpose is mission. Our purpose is worship. Our purpose is mission. Our purpose is for God. The church exists for God. But the church also exists for others. It's about worship. It's about witness. And that's what we're going to go through together. We'll start with this one then. The church exists to worship. The church exists for God first and foremost. So it says that we're a royal priesthood. We're a, a holy nation, a chosen people, people for his own possession. And all of those things are centered around God. We're holy because he has made us holy. We're chosen by him. We're a people for him. Uh, and we're priests, priests who are devoted to him. Um, God, who created everything and is the source of love, has chosen a people to worship him, to know him and to enjoy him. 
God has made people to love him, made people to know him, made people to enjoy him. Think about this for a moment. The creative mind that formed everything that we can see around us, okay? So the creative mind that formed uh, these giant crystal caves in Mexico, the creative mind that, that formed this pink lake, Lake Hillia in Western Australia, The creative mind that made those things, that made coffee and wine and honey and chocolate, that God has chosen to invite a people to know him intimately and powerfully and personally and specially. That's who God is. Um, If we can go to the next slide. We're a people who are a priesthood. Let's just look at this word priesthood for a second. We'll talk about this. A priest is someone who's devoted to the service of a particular God. Uh, In the Old Testament, priests served the people and ministered to God. In the Old Testament, priests lived off the offerings of the people. They were entirely dependent upon God for everything. And to be a priest, you had to be born a priest. You couldn't just choose to become one. In the New Testament, we read, things have changed Things have changed. Now, I know you love history, so I thought we'd go down a little bit of a history lesson this week. Um, So if we have this next slide, this is a picture of William Tyndale. There he is, William Tyndale, very handsome man indeed. Uh, A few years ago, the BBC conducted a survey uh, of the hundred, or produced a list of the hundred greatest Britons ever to have lived. Um, And in that list, at number 56 was Cliff Richard, Uh, number 40 was Henry VIII, but this man also featured it at number 26, William Tyndale. He was a very significant man. But in 1536, Tyndale was killed by the church, or the Kirsch. He was killed by those in authority. He was executed by strangulation, and then after being strangled, his, his dead body was burned on the stake, at the stake. On the stake. It makes him sound like a dish, doesn't it? It was burned at the stake, as if strangling him wasn't enough. Why? What did Tyndale do so drastically wrong? Well, Tyndale famously translated the Bible into English, or translated the New Testament specifically into English. What a crime, what a a criminal thing for the man to do. And they killed him for it. But they killed him for it for a few reasons. Um, First was this, he translated the Bible from the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. And in in translating the Bible, he opted for words that were more appropriate and in line with the meaning of the original than they were politically popular. So, the word ecclesia. Up until this point, the word had been used, kirsch church, the building that people met in. Tyndale translated the word ecclesia into congregation. So if you read a Tyndale Bible, it says the congregation, because that's what it means. But he also translated the word presbyter, uh, which is the word for elder or overseer. He translated it, instead of translating the word priest or putting the word priest in, he chose the word elder or overseer. And you're thinking, why does this matter? What does this matter for anything? Well, it matters for a few reasons. Uh, in the New Testament, they, they organise themselves in, in ecclesias and churches. And each of the ecclesias and churches had a leadership structure. The leadership structure in the New Testament was this. There were elders and deacons. Uh, an elder uh, is a, was a man of uh, good character and reputation among a community who took responsibility for uh, the doctrine, the belief of the community, and the direction of the community, and the discipline of the community. 
He acted like, in a team with other men, acted like a father to a family. He, the elders, were served by a team of deacons, men and women who were leaders in the church who took responsibility for, used their gifts to serve the vision of the elders, if you like, the fathers of the community. In Tyndale's day, church government had become almost entirely hierarchical and power-hungry and political. Rather than being a family, it was an institution. It had become mystical. It wasn't a family at all. And so that's why he translated the word, not priest, as was politically popular and appropriate, but elder and overseer. Again, why does this matter? What does this matter for anything? It matters because of what we just read in 1 Peter 2. In verse 9, you're a chosen race and you are a royal priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. Peter says this, if you're a Christian and you're in the church of God, you're a priest, part of a royal priesthood. That was life-changing and mind-blowing in Tyndale's day, and it is still in our day. We call this the priesthood of all believers, or every member ministry. Everyone gets a part to play, and everyone is as influential and significant in the people of God as anyone else. And so a lot of the discussions that go on in the media or in churches about um, can so-and-so be a priest or can women be priests, they're wrong-footed to begin with because the Bible says you are a priesthood. You are a priest. If you're a man, if you're a woman, if you're a child, you're a priest to God. I want you to feel the force of that and I want that to sink in because the church needs for us to grasp that. This church needs for all of us to grasp the significance of this point that we are, each of us, priests. Remember, a priest is someone who's dependent on God. A priest is someone who's devoted to God. A priest is someone who serves others. And priests could only be priests if they were born priests, right? In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, you're reborn. You get born again when you come to Christ. And you get born into a priestly line. Actually, because we're family, all of us are blood relatives of one another. Blood relatives in the sense that Jesus' blood is the thing that unites us and has washed us clean and has made us priests. So you are a priest. There's no status difference in church life. It's not a hierarchy that we operate by. All of us can use our gifts to serve one another. See, in the New Testament, several things changed, and part of, the, part of our understanding about the priesthood is significant to help us understand the rest of what changed in New Testament terms for Christians and for God-fearers and worshippers of God. As you read the Old Testament, you come across the anointed man of God, who's elevated almost above the populace, who God uses in a particularly special way, or uh, the anointed man or woman of God, and in some parts of our thinking, that's still there. We still think of the people at the front or the people in authority with responsibility as being the anointed ones, as being the men and women of God. That's not a New Testament way of thinking. 
In the New Testament, the anointing refers to the Holy Spirit who's given to each one of us. And in the New Testament, the man of God is anyone or the woman of God is anyone who's looking to be obedient to Christ and live a life honoring to him. So if you're a Christian, you're a priest, but more than that, you are the anointed man or woman of God. You are the anointed man or woman of God. The man of power for the hour. It's you. You're it. Don't look to the front and go, we need them. We need the anointed man. No, if you're a Christian, it's you. And now last week when we, when we talked about the church being a people, I, you get the impression that a lot of that is difficult for those of us from a, a Western cold climate background because we're used to shutting our door, hiding away and just keeping ourselves to ourselves. That's, so we've got a lot to push through to get a New Testament vision of church life. But for a lot of my other brothers and sisters from other cultures and backgrounds, this is a big point that needs to be rammed home. You are the man of God. You are the woman of God. You are the priest of God. MZZ does this to me all the time, right? I love him, uh, but part of his African heritage means that he often, I think he does it to wind me up because he knows it makes me feel uncomfortable. He often likes to wax lyrical in his kind of Zimbabwean ways about, oh, you are mighty man of God, the man of power for the hour, the pastor who I will obey with everything. And I have to stop him and say, shh, stop. (laughs) It's just not a biblical way of thinking. It's just not. Now, don't get me wrong. In our culture, the danger is we hear that and go, yeah, good, get rid of authority altogether. It's all gone. We're all just the same, aren't we, anyway? Which isn't right either. That's an overstep. But each of us would have our different quirks and things that we need to work through for us. Also, the way that, Paul, the, way that the New Testament talks about spiritual authority then is very different. Paul doesn't exert his authority over churches because I'm the man of God. You listen to me. I've had a vision from God. You listen to me. He says, trust me. Why? Because of the blood that I've spilt on your behalf. Leaders in the church are slaves of the church. And you can spot a pastor or an elder of a community by the way they lay their lives down for the community. That ought to be the measure, not whether they have a dog collar or whether they have a doctorate or a degree. Those things are useful and at times helpful. But spiritual authority is something that isn't imposed on people, it's received by one another. That's why we run Identify courses. Because you might come along week in, week out and think, oh, this is my church, I'm part of this church, but I'm not going to exert spiritual authority over you and leadership necessarily until you come to me and say, I want to be part of this church formally. I want to receive the authority, of, the authority structure of this church for my life. I want you to, I give you permission to speak into my life. Because we don't impose ourselves Instead, you receive leadership, you submit to leadership, you choose that as something that's good for your life. We don't impose that. And I think that's a much more healthy and helpful approach to Christian life and New Testament church life. You see this in 2 Corinthians, where Paul writes this long letter to the church there, basically not basically saying, please receive me as your apostle. I started this church. God's using me in powerful ways all around the world. But he writes this letter to beg them, saying, please trust me. I'm like a father to you. I need you to receive this correction, this authority. He doesn't say, do what I say or else. Well, he does, but he does it because he's in relationship with them. What this means, drilling this down even further, because you're a priest, is that you have an extremely valuable part to play in this church. 
You get to join in and use your gifts as much as anyone else, whether they've got a guitar or not. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to people. A lot of them are just common grace gifts, things that you're born with. Claire's singing voice is of a different type of gift to my singing voice. That's why we put a microphone in front of her and we don't in front of me. Well, we do, but not when I'm singing. And at times when I have sung, I've been told don't do that ever again. It's not a gift that you have. But we use our gifts to bless one another. So if you have a gift of leadership, you use it to lead as part of the family. If your gift is to pastor and care for one another, we need that. I know my gifts and I know what my weaknesses are. I'm not and we're not in leaders in this church, people who have it all. No, we're a family and each of us have got gifts to bring. For some of you, your gift to the church is, is your generosity and your giving. And you need to be released to make a lot of money to give to the family of God to bless and encourage and strengthen what we're doing. For some of you, your gift is that you're just, you're just, you're so thoughtful, you're, or you're particularly good at administration, or you're just, you, you notice when someone's not there, or you're just really good at praying for people and caring for people, or you're very good at doing stuff that no one's going to notice, but God sees, and the church is built up by it. Why? Because you're a brick in a building that's being established and strengthened by God, and it's extremely significant and extremely valuable. So use your gifts, but don't use your gifts as mavericks, just doing whatever the heck you like. You use your gifts as part of the family that you're in accountable to one another. Ephesians 4, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's how we use our gifts. So a couple of years ago, and we had a, a baptism meeting here, and a lady was visiting for one of the first times, and she felt God had given her a gift of dance, and so during the worship, um, wanted to use that gift of dance. Great. Plus, use your gifts. Enjoy God in the gathered setting. We're here to worship God. But she didn't feel like it was enough to just worship in her seat. She came out the front and started worship, dancing in and amongst the band members, which was particularly off-putting and distracting. So afterwards, I just spoke to her and said, it's great that you feel you want to dance. Just don't do it at the front, please, because it's distracting and it's off-putting and it doesn't help us. She never came back. She had a gift. She was using it, but she wasn't using it in an accountable way to one another. I know how painful it is sometimes when I've used a gift and someone's had to bring a level of correction to how I've done it. Not in a hard way, but in a, you could have done that better. I know how difficult that is. And I can have a temptation when someone speaks to me in that way to just throw my toys out the pram and say, well, I'm never doing anything again then. Right, forget this then if you don't want my gift. But no, because I'm part of the family, I learn from things, I grow. Uh, John and I have conversations most weeks where we just talk about the communication and how we can improve and get better because we want to use our gifts to serve one another and serve the church well and that's what we're here to do. To be priests to God, worshippers of God, get lost in God and all of us bring different gifts to the table in the way that we do that. Next slide. The church exists for God and for others. For worship and for mission. Verse 9, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Verse 11, so that outsiders might speak well of God. In the Old Testament, if we click through some of these, in the Old Testament, in Exodus 9.16, it says this, For this purpose I've raised you up, to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Next one. The Lord your God did to the Red Sea, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That's the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's over a hundred references to, to God choosing his people in order to be a blessing to the whole world. In the New Testament, it carries on. Jesus says of his people, you are the light of the world, a city set on the hill. Next one. 
Jesus also says this, as the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Over 80 times in the New Testament, the church is described as a missionary people. We believe in every member ministry, but we also believe in every member missionary. That we're a people who are for God, but we also exist for others. And you see that as very two clear reasons why God has chosen a people on planet Earth. But in practice, this can create some tension over how we live and how we do church together. In actual fact, the mission aspect of church life is the fulfillment of the worship aspect. It's the satisfaction of the appreciation, isn't it? So I, I see a film that I really like and I become an evangelist for it. Why? Because, and I tell others, you should go see that film. Why am I told to do that? No, because it's, it's the fulfillment of my appreciation. When I say, you watch this film, go see this thing, it's really good. So it is with the church. God, you've changed my life. I worship you. I just have to tell people, have to tell people how good God is. Why am I being told to? No, but it's the satisfaction of the appreciation I get when I come to God. But like I said, in practice, this can create some tension. So I've heard some people say, oh, the reason that um, mission exists is because worship doesn't. In other words, stop worrying about worshipping and just get on and be a missionary. Just see people saved, tell them about Jesus, preach the gospel. If some people say that, mission is the most important thing. Go, 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 go. But then I have other friends of mine who say, listen, don't worry about mission and evangelism. It's a horrible word anyway. Instead, what we need is when the church becomes a beautiful, spotless, clean bride, then revival will come. Then the end will come because the church is perfect. And so you have a lot of church structures and streams that develop that are basically the, the purified movement who hide themselves away, escape from the world and go, let's just get pure because when we do that, then the end will come. Or well, some people say this about our gathered meetings. Worship, sung worship, is for God. God sees the heart. Therefore, it doesn't matter how good you are at playing an instrument. Anyone who wants to should be able to have a microphone and sing and play guitar because worship is from the heart anyway. But then you have other people who say, no, 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 worship's for God. It's the most significant thing we can do. He's the most significant person we can sing to. Therefore, it needs to be of the highest caliber possible because it's for God. There's different tensions that exist in how we should do it. But a lot of this worship and mission stuff is a tension that we're to manage rather than a problem we need to solve. It's just always going to be there. And actually, in how we conduct our community life together, it'll always be there. So next slide. In 2 Corinthians 5.13, Paul says this. If we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right minds, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of God decides what we do. If we're beside ourselves, or other translations say that the original is more like if we're ecstatic in the way that we are, if we're just out of, if we're having out of body, out of mind experiences, that's for God. But if we're in our right mind, it's for you. In other words, we don't just get lost in this glory cloud and go, oh, forget everyone else. I just want to speak in tongues and who cares if anyone understands what I'm doing and I'm just going to have these out-of-body religious spiritual experiences and who cares if people think I'm a nutter. We could just do that, but Paul says, no, no, no. We want to be in our right minds so that other people understand as well. See, true freedom, Christ comes to set us free. True freedom is having the freedom to choose out of love how we express our worship 
and we express ourselves when we're together in ways that hopefully make sense and are intelligible and bring glory to God because people understand what's going on. And so we spend a lot of time talking about the, the context of the society that we live in and how we can present church in a way that is not just relevant to them but makes sense to people who aren't from a church background. I, I don't come from a church background, so I remember the first time I went to uh, a church meeting that was what we call charismatic, and people were singing in these languages I'd never heard of, and the part of me just thought, what on earth is going on? But they explained it, so I thought, oh, I get it. Huh, I'm intrigued, and so I stayed. And that's an, an appropriate and important tension to hold. However, sometimes with even the best will in the world and the best intentions in the world, it can backfire badly for us. So when I, when I got filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time in my life, uh, I felt a new level of boldness and confidence in expressing myself in worship. And so I went through a period as a new Christian of just whenever there was a time of sung worship, I would just dance like a nutter at the front of church. Not in the band, but just here. I'd just be dancing, going crazy, doing the running man, body popping, just jumping. The Christian dance is this, isn't it? But I would go even further and do this, and sometimes even more than that. <laughs> and I would do that in church time after time again because, right, there was a story in the Old Testament about King David who dances before the Lord, and it says that he was undignified. He took off all of his clothes apart from his underwear and just danced before God and the congregation and I thought that's what true worship is and so I used to do that a lot in church life I still do um, to an extent Um, but there was one week I just felt God really challenge me and say the reason you do that how do you know that the reason you do that isn't to just so that other people look at you and go oh look he's really spiritual so I felt God say I want you to worship privately in the same way you worship publicly so that you're a person of integrity and so I took that to heart, went home, uh, and I, I was still living with my parents, none of my family Christians. Everyone was out. Everyone was out. So I put on Soul Survivor 96 album, or whatever it was, and just started singing along, dancing in my living room, running around, jumping on the sofas. And because of the David story in my head, took my shirt off, was swinging around my head, going, yeah, Jesus, I love you. Turned around, my sisters opened the door going, what are you doing? I was like, nothing, nothing. Just retreat back into my shell. But the important point is that we're to aim for integrity in how we worship, publicly, privately, before God, and intelligibly before others as well. The question that often people ask, or you might have wondered yourself before, is um, not perhaps of us, but are we too showy? Is church supposed to be a showy place or a not showy place? Are we supposed to have bright lights and a band on a stage and smoke machines and laser lights and a glitter ball? Is that that too showy or is that not showy enough? And there's a tension in that as well. Now, we don't suffer that problem too much because we're in a school hall, but we still make value choices about how we're going to present ourselves. We can't hide the fact that we have exam desks and, and odd pieces of art on the wall that we don't understand, that numbers down the side and we're in a school. You can't hide that. But we choose to set out lights and to have lights on and we choose to have chairs out. We make choices of what we're going to do because we want to present ourselves in a way that we think gives glory to God. It says we want to give God our highest, for his, our utmost for his highest. Um, but I remember when I, when I first started leading the church here, within a year I had two families in the church leave. One family left because they said we're too much like Hillsong. Hillsong is... Um, it's basically a very lively expression of worship, um, very popular in a lot of the big cities around Europe, comes from Australia, and very show-like. 
Um, lots of smoke machines and lights, lots of kind of beautiful young people with microphones on the stage dancing around. Nothing wrong with that, but they said, we're leaving because you're too much like Hillsong. When we look at you, it just looks too showy, too plastic, too false. I was like, okay, sorry about that. But then I had another family in the church who left because they said, you're not Hillsong enough. You don't give God enough glory with the way that you set out things and present yourselves. So you had one family saying, you're too plastic and false. It should be all about the heart and just intimacy with God. And you had another family leaving saying, no, you're not showy enough. God is worthy of even more effort than you give him. And I had no idea what I was doing because I'd only just started leading the church. And I just found myself going, huh, this is a tension, isn't it? There's a tension between how we present ourselves. It's not a problem to solve. It's a tension to hold and a tension to manage. And there are those kind of tensions in everything that we do together as a church and the way that we communicate and express ourselves and the type of messages that we preach that we think will engage with Christians and hopefully people who aren't Christians just as much. But there's also tensions individually in the way that we live our lives and that's what the heart of this passage is about. Um, Paul, Peter says, keep watch over your way of life so that people see the way you live and give glory to God. So you're to live then as a missionary or as a witness to the world around you. When I was at uni and I just became a Christian, I struggled with this a lot because I loved God, but I didn't have much confidence to tell people about God. So I found when I was on nights out with my friends, alcohol helped. The trouble was I would often be just as drunk as everybody else and then start witnessing about how wonderful God was and how much he changed. Yeah, he's changed my life so much. He's just come and change. It's amazing. So good. And we'd have these heart-to-heart moments, crying on one another's shoulders. Jesus changed me. I used to be a wretch and drunk and now I'm fine. I used to do that. And I'd wake up in the morning with a screaming headache going, oh, I've got to go to church now. And we were too embarrassed about what we talked about. I thought, there's an inconsistency here in my life. So Peter says, live in a wise way before people who aren't Christians so they look at your life and go, huh, I might not like you. I might not want to be one, but I respect you and I give glory to God as a result. Are you someone who's just as cynical or just as skeptical as everybody else? Are you someone who sleeps around like everybody else or is having sex outside of marriage and saying, yeah, God doesn't mind that, it's fine? Are you someone who deliberately, well, not deliberately, but intentionally, knowingly, disobeys God, that's going to hinder your witness to the world around you. So it's important then that as missionaries we know our weaknesses. We know our weaknesses. You know where you're vulnerable. Uh, tragically, in the what was it, 19th century, uh, scores of young men and women, married couples, passionate about God, went on mission to the South Pacific beautiful tropical islands and when they got there they went to reach people who'd never heard of the gospel before the natives of the islands because it was tropical and they were tribes people didn't wear many clothes tragically many of these missionaries their marriages broke up they committed adultery and had affair after affair with the natives because they weren't prepared for what they found and they weren't completely aware of the weaknesses that they were struggling with So it's important that we don't go it alone as Christians. There's a saying that I came across that's this, lone rangers are dead rangers. As a Christian, don't live alone. Don't think you can just be a missionary to the world around you without support. Jesus sent out his followers in twos. We go out in twos and threes. And it surprises me often how how few of us 
even obey that principle. If you're looking to witness to the world about the love of God, don't feel that you have to do it on your own. In fact, where possible, go in twos and threes. So we don't hide away. We live, we work alongside people, we join clubs, we run quizzes, we do Zumba classes, we go to coffee mornings. And actually as a church, we make quite an effort to not put more than two things on in a week. We don't, we don't expect more than church and a midweek thing from anyone's diaries and lives because we think, no, it's important that we're among people. Uh, sociologists have done surveys and on dozens of occasions they've noted that the number one reason anyone converts from one faith to another or from no faith to another or from faith to no faith, the number one reason isn't doctrine. The number one reason is social network, the friends that they have, which is surprising. What it's saying is if you're not a Christian, one of the main reasons that you're not a Christian isn't your beliefs. It's your social network because you haven't, got, you haven't seen it among your friends enough to believe it and go, yeah, I will give myself to this. But it's also challenging because it means that if we're Christians and we're looking to reach people who don't know God, we can't do it by throwing tracks at people or hitting them over the head with the Bible. Actually, the pattern of the early church was that they lived among the, the Gentiles. They shared their lives. They invited them into their homes. And that's what we're to do as well. We're to study the language of the, like missionaries would, study the language of the people you're looking to reach. Be cultural analysts. Be aware of the, the big divide and the gap between the world and the church and, and how much that's getting wider and wider. Be aware of those things. But in it all, we know that the church can have a great deal of confidence because the church is built on Jesus. It's a people, not a place. And it's made for worship. It's made for witness. And you see, despite our imperfections, despite the fact that we're not the people um, who've got it all together, despite the fact that we're imperfect people with this great ideal and the real is often very far from it, despite that, in Matthew 16, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and not even the gates of death will be able to stop me. Saying that the church are people who can plunder even death itself and rescue people um, who are spiritually dead and spiritually far from God. Jesus had confidence in what he was doing. And why did he have confidence? How did he know that the church was going to be able to be built? In 1 Peter, we read it, and it's the crescendo of this passage. The thing that, as you read it, you go, oh, this is glorious. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're a people who've been made new by mercy. We've been brought together by mercy, the mercy that we've been shown. Because of it, we're able to worship God. Because of it, we're able to witness to others, and not in a dutiful way, but in a look at what God's done in my life. We're able to live in light of the identity of being people of God and those who've received mercy wasn't always true for you. For some of you, it might still not be true. You might be sitting there thinking, I'm not a Christian. So does this mean that I haven't received mercy? What it means is that the offer of mercy has been extended to you and you can enter into it, receive mercy, become part of the people of God. But it wasn't always true of us, but it is now. You're loved, you're forgiven, and you've received mercy from God. So that's the church from 1 Peter 2. Two weeks, hopefully just to catch us up, keep us on the same page, that we're a people built around Jesus. 
We're a people, not a place. And we're made with clear purpose to worship God and to witness about him to others. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the glorious truth in this passage, God, that we've spent a couple of weeks looking at. I pray that some of the truth of it, God, would get right under our skin, become part of our core identity of who we are and what we're looking to do in this town. To love people, to share the good news of Jesus with people, and to do it all because we are those who've received mercy and are loved by you. We thank you, God. Amen.